0: Yes, good morning everyone. I I recognise we're a couple of minutes early so I'll just start with some brief introductions to say welcome along to this uh, half-day GP rolling education provided by Wessex LMC's and WebPET. My name's Dr Julia Hempenstall and I'm a GP in Wiltshire and I also work as one of the GPs that are helping on this programme and Steph's here too. Steph, do you want to introduce yourself? Hello, thank you, Julia. Good morning. I'm Steph Hughes. I'm also a GP, currently working as a locum in the Southampton area. And like Julia, I've been very pleased to be involved in this rolling programme of education. And I think we've put together a great morning for you. So I'm looking forward to it and hope you enjoy yeah exactly and and doesn't it feel like a slightly more hopeful morning this morning the sun's out and um and some of us have got children going back to school in a couple of weeks properly um i really am aware of all the stress that most of us are feeling out there in primary care and i think it's probably appropriate to take a moment just to thank you for everything that you've been doing uh to do with the vaccination program and juggling all of um all of what we've done Um, But this morning, um, because it's nine o'clock, I'll get going. We have got a morning of fantastic variety for you. We're going to spend the first part of the morning talking about eating disorders. I'm absolutely delighted that we have got um, three experts here. We've got Dr. Hannah Burgess uh, and she's a GP in Southampton but also is uh, a clinical lead for mental health in Southampton uh, and is doing a a lot to review the adult uh, eating eating disorders service Uh, and she's going to start with a presentation and we've got psychiatrist Dr. Adam Cox here as well um, who's going to uh, they're going to do a presentation each of about 20 minutes and then we want to really encourage a bit of Q&A from you as participants out there because we know eating disorders are actually quite rare but when we come across them they can have devastating effects for our families, for our patients uh, and also us as a clinician and and so we're going to hopefully address some of that today and then in the second part of the eating disorders we're absolutely delighted that we've got Dr. Dr. Charlie Jewell here who's going to come and give a very personal experience uh, and I'm absolutely delighted and thank you for coming then we're going to take a little break uh, just for a leg stretch, make sure you're, 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 you're get, not going to get a DVT, get up a bit of exercise, get a cup, and then we're going to start promptly again at 11 o'clock and there's going to be a slightly different take. The two presentations after the break uh, we've got Dr Andrew Morris who's a GP who's going to talk to us about um, managing medical complexity uh, and he's a very known, well, uh, well-known well speaker and we're looking forward to him and then we're going to give you A little bit of a difference as well uh, and look at um, the human factors in medical mistakes with uh, Richard Jones who's a cardiologist in Portsmouth. So I hope you're sitting comfortably uh, and what I'd like you to do is please interact with the Q&A because Steph and I are here to facilitate and chair and put those questions to our experts. This really is about your education uh, and so please do get involved. But what I'll do is I'll hand over to Hannah. Hannah, if you're ready, um, we'll we'll get going with you first. Thank you very much.
1: That's all right. So yeah, as um, Julia said, my name's Hannah, I'm a jobbing GP um, and uh, I'll be doing this presentation with Dr Cox, we've we've blended the two together to try and give an overview of primary care through to secondary care, what we think um, we need to know as GPs in terms of adult eating disorders. So next slide, please. So I think the first thing to say is that adult eating disorders is a really huge, complex range of illnesses. Um, There's no one one particular illness, it is a range, and every single one has both mental and physical health symptoms with the potential for really quite significant longer term health consequences. Um, And they can worry us, especially in primary care, because they can result in very high risks of harm. So when we think about the different types of eating disorders, we may see, I think we all we all sort of know about the sort of typical anorexia and the bulimia. But actually a lot of our um, patients, when we do refer them may end up with a diagnosis of EDNOS, which is um, eating disorder not otherwise specified. And these are people that meet many of the criteria for anorexia or bulimia, um, but may not fulfil every single element of the criteria. So, um, for instance, somebody perhaps with um a normal weight in the normal weight range but they're losing weight quite fast and have a lot of the symptoms of anorexia. There's also binge eating disorder which is quite a common one and this is about that um, people are being compelled to overeat but you're not having the compensatory mechanisms that you might see in bulimia of that, that purging behavior. There's also something called ARFID which is avoidant restrictive food intake disorder and this is really related to very specific types of food, and there's op- it's op- often sensory based. Um, so it could be that somebody's had a traumatic experience with a certain type of food, and then restricts that food, won't won't eat that food in order to remain safe. But it, it leads to um, people not having enough food intake, essentially. Um, and this is one that we sometimes see overlapping with people that may suffer from autism. There are two other terms that have been um, sort of spoken about a lot recently. One is diabulimia, which um, I did check the DSM-5 and, and I, I don't think it's recognized by the DSM-5 yet, but essentially this is about people skipping insulin in order to decrease weight. And actually, um, I have a lady who I've been looking after for about seven years now, who um, is a uh, type two diabetic on insulin. And she her C was just awful. And no matter what we did, we could not get it down and it wasn't until we started to have um sort of a more more of a chat around her eating behaviors her emotions and her eating the food that we discovered that she was binging but also deliberately emitting insulin as well and actually she's been through the eating disorder service now and it her life has been quite transformed actually by the fact that she is able to manage her emotions and have coping skills that don't involve the food and she's no longer emitting the insulin and her HbA1c has come down brilliantly and she's doing a lot better. The other one is orthorexia, which again is not technically um, within the DSM-5, but it could be held under the ARFIDS diagnosis, which is about people that have an unhealthy obsession with this idea of pure food. So it can sometimes start a sort of clean eating, strict dieting. Um, But then food groups are omitted from the diet leading to potentially um, weight loss that isn't healthy or um, unhealthy obsessions with that type of food. Next slide. So how often do we actually see these people in primary care? Well, that's difficult because the exact prevalence of eating disorders is difficult to gauge. There are different figures um, in, in the literature. But we know that inpatient admissions for both children and adults have been rising since 2009. We we think that about 1.25 million people in the UK have an eating disorder. We did some recent um, audit work looking at uh, referrals in Southampton. And what was interesting was that in a city the size of Southampton, which has about 280,000 people, obviously some of those are children as well, we referred 82 people in one year to the adult eating Disorder service. And if you look at this at a practice level to sort of try and understand how often you might see these people, um, one of our, you know, our bigger practices, that around 25,000 p- patients, had between about 7 and 11 patients being referred in. But some of our smaller practices had either just one or no referrals within one year. So I think there's there is a variety there, depending on the size of the practice, but essentially this is not something that every GP is necessarily going to see every year. And that obviously makes it quite hard for us in terms of spotting it, picking it up and maintaining these clinical skills. The other interesting thing we saw was that quite, there was quite a few people that had been referred in that actually the GP hadn't been re- referred in at all. It was IAPT, so our talking therapy service. So these were people that were presented to the GP with symptoms of anxiety and depression and, you know, absolutely correctly had been advised to seek support from IAPT. But when IAPT did the assessment, that was when the, um, the sort of cognitions and behaviours around eating came out. Um, so these people were then transferred onto the eating disorders service. So I think it's really important to recognise that many people present with mood disorders, self-harm, if they're females they may present with amenorrhea or menstrual irregularities, possibly fatigue or it may be that person who just asks about weight gain as a side effect of contraception and you know that opens a door to perhaps just asking a few screening questions. And it's really important because prompt identification and intervention has been demonstrated to significantly improve the outcome Um, for the eating disorder client. Next slide. So we do get scared about eating disorders and and that's partly because things like mortality are really high um, in some cases. So anorexia nervosa is a serious psychiatric illness and it has one of the highest mortality rates of any mental health disorder. The thing is that the, the mortality is both physical health and mental health related. So we see people with severe nutritional problems that can go on to cardiac causes of death, but we also see that this actually has quite a high suicide rate as well. So we need to be thinking of both things when we're meeting somebody with um, adult eating disorders and we're risk assessing someone. Data on bulimia is less certain, but there are still clear physical health risks. Um, Anybody who's, vomiting more than three times a week is going to need monitoring for electrolyte abnormalities and the the problems that those can then lead to. Next slide. So anorexia nervosa is the one we all think about the most and this one is the one which um, we have a lot of concerns about in terms of the physical health risks as well. Um, This is is the definition according to the DSM-5 criteria. And as you can see, there is that fear of becoming fat or gaining weight and having that distorted view of themselves and their body image. And alongside that, you have to have restriction of food intake and weight loss, essentially, you have to have a significantly low body weight. Next slide, please. Whereas bulimia nervosa, um, this is going to be episodes of binge eating. Um, and There needs to be, this needs to have been occurring for a specific amount of time, and there needs to be a a sort of a lack of control over eating during these episodes. But then alongside that, what differentiates this from binge eating disorder is that compensatory behaviour in order to sort of avoid weight gain. So self-induced vomiting, misuse of laxatives, even diuretic medication can be used as well. They may also fast for periods of time and um, show episodes of excessive exercise. And again, this compensatory behaviour needs to be—it needs to have been occurring for uh, a certain amount of time. But I think the important thing is, that, as I said a couple of slides ago, a lot of our patients may end up being diagnosed with EDNOS, so they may not fit this absolute, full-strip criteria. And I don't think it's up to us as GPs to be absolutely one hundred percent making that do- diagnosis and saying this person has anorexia nervosa, this person has bulimia nervosa. Um, if we have concerns about Somebody showing um, that they have significant issues um, around food eating, that it is causing weight loss, or it is causing them to have to carry out these potentially quite destructive compensatory behaviours, then we need to be referring them in to be assessed. Next slide, please. So opening up the conversation. I think recognising signs of an emerging eating disorder can be challenging. And patients may not actually admit to increasing difficulty with with their relationships with food. Um, Sometimes a collateral history from family members or a partner may be helpful. And I think it's also important to recognize that this often begins as a coping strategy, which if left untreated can become an illness, which then over a period of time takes a severe toll on somebody's life. as that develops it can in turn compromise potentially someone's decision-making ability and the ability to seek help. So if you have somebody who's potentially presenting with anxiety, self-harm, menstrual irregularities like we discussed before, um, I think it's important to t- sort of maybe have a couple of screening questions up, up, up your sleeve and these are some that I found on um, an article written by an eating disorder specialist nurse um, so, do you worry about your weight? Maybe too much is one. Um, there is a SCOFF screening questionnaire as well, which I'm happy to send a link out to at the end, um, which can also be used. But I think sometimes opening up with a simple question like this, do you spend a lot of your time thinking about your weight and what you eat? can be a good way of trying to open up that conversation. Next slide, please. Um, I've just seen the question flash up about do we need to take notes? Very happy for these um, slides to be shared afterwards so you guys have got the notes. Um, so what do we need to be asking? What do we need to know about this when we're actually speaking to the patient? So it'll be really helpful to have an example of a typical day and, and what they are eating and what they're doing during that day. Um, any sort of calorie or fat gram counting or restriction and limit that they've placed on themselves, um, any rigid rules about food and eating, any episodes of binge eating, so remember that's uncontrolled eating, sort of being past full and it's usually eating within a short period of time, self-induced vomiting, laxative or diuretic use, um, any excessive exercise, um, weight loss, Amount and duration is important because the speed of weight loss is important in terms of understanding their physical health risks. Um, The importance they place on having control over eating and the importance of body shape and weight. Next page. So it's important to think about the mental health, comorbidity and mental health symptoms that they may also be experiencing. And it's, it's quite common to present with depression um, symptoms of anorexia, personality disorder, self-harm, um, obsessive compulsive disorder, alcohol or substance misuse, and Asperger's. So anorexia and autism both potentially can lead people to have um, obsessive behaviours and also suffer rigid ways of thinking, so there is that overlap. And certainly um, this is something we may also see in personality disorder. So I have um a patient who I've been looking after for about three years now with emotionally unstable personality disorder. She's an inpatient at the moment, but um, when I first met her, um, she was taking weekly overdoses, um, and that then progressed to uh, starving herself, so not eating at all. And she she was very slim, and she, she her weight was stable, um, but she did report a preoccupation with her weight, and her body image and said she was worried she was overweight even though she actually had BMI was less than 20. Um, But she would have periods of not eating then passing out, being taken to A&E and having an NG tube put in. And this was somebody who I ended up actually discussing with Dr Cox and we had discussions around, is this an eating disorder or is this EUPD? Um, So I think cases like that can be really difficult. And so reaching out and chatting to, either your CMHT psychiatrist about the case, or to um, your eating disorders team about the case is is really important if it helps you to if it helps to sort of unpick and and understand the best way to support this person. Next page, please. So physical health, Um, physical health symptoms that um, if somebody's got an eating disorder may present with, so there may be obviously emaciation, menstrual irregularities. There may also be muscle weakness and cramps, joint pains and palpitations. They may suffer with gastrointestinal problems, especially if they've been abusing laxatives. Um, Dizziness um, and fatigue, hair loss, um, but also they can develop that fine downy hair called uh, lanugo hair. Cold intolerance and skin changes. Next, please. So examination. Nice recommends that we do baseline bloods and investigations to exclude other causes of weight loss. You know, maybe somebody's massively hyperthyroid or somebody has um, celiac disease and just can't. Um, you know, uh, that's what that's what's causing the weight loss. So it's important to exclude those things if you think they are a possibility. Um, but. NICE also recommends a health assessment in terms of the risk of physical health for this person with an eating disorder at baseline. And there is King's College um, guidance available as well, written by Professor Janet Treasure, which also um, gives further detail on actually what we should be looking at when we're meeting somebody um, who we think has an eating disorder and we want to understand what impact this is having on their physical health and what potential risks there are associated. So BMI is is the first thing, Um, but we should also be checking for circulation status, so blood pressure and pulse. Looking at their muscle strength, and this is done through a sit and squat test. Examination of the skin and their temperature, and a full physical examination looking for infection and signs of nutritional deficiency, which essentially is the same thing again. It's poor circulation, dizziness, palpitations, fainting or pallor, I think somebody's raised their hand. Did you want to ask a question at this point? Is that Fliss, Sure. Nope. Okay, I'll carry on. Um, and then we need to have a look at baseline bloods as well. So looking at um, full blood count, these LFTs, TFTs, bone profile, um, Magnesium and phosphate and creatinine kinase. If we do meet somebody and um, we're assessing them for the first, first time and, they're EC, and their BMI is less than 15 or we notice that they're bradycardic um, or we are concerned that they're at risk of refeeding syndrome or, or they're on other medications that could potentially um, uh, have... Um, a, a, affect the QT interval so things like SSRIs could for instance or certain antipsychotics can but there are physical health meds as well then it is really important to do an ECG to check for QT prolongation. Um, Next slide please. Um, So this is just a summary um, which we're planning on using in Hampshire of Professor Janet Treasure's guidance. And Dorset have a very similar table to this as well, which their eating disorder service are using. And essentially, this is about how to classify somebody's risk in terms of their physical health. I don't expect you to remember all of this, but I think the important thing is that if you are seeing somebody with an eating disorder, um, if you're in Dorset be speaking to the Dorset service about uh, actually how do, I health, health, how do I risk assess this person's physical health, and if you're in Hampshire, this will be available shortly. At the moment, what we do have is Professor Janet Treasure's guidance on physical health monitoring. And this is essentially taken from that. And it's broken down into a way that helps well, helped me to understand it, to be perfectly honest, in terms of actually grading risk for somebody in terms of their physical health. Next slide, please. So engaging with your patient. Um, I think this bit is really important because one of the things about some of these eating disorders is that this is a marathon and not a sprint. So for people with anorexia, there is a, it takes approximately six to eight years on average to reach recovery. And for somebody with bulimia, that's five years. So it's really important that we take time to build that trust and rapport and have that continuity with somebody and try and maintain that non-judgmental approach. The food and the eating is the manifestation, it's how they're going to present, but purely focusing on that can be unhelpful. We need to try and explore the feelings that are underlying this and why they've ended up with these cognitions and behaviours and how the person is actually coping. So focusing on supporting the person coping is really important because these cognitions around food are really, really strong. And as I said to you at the start, sometimes there can be ambivalence towards the diagnosis and treatment, and that's common. So if you're struggling with sort of with that, then go back to the original presenting complaint that they came with and then gradually reintroduce the questions about food and encouraging referral. Um, Support alternative coping strategies, Um, be patient. the person and think about the stages of change perhaps you know helping somebody to move from that pre-contemplative stage to that contemplative stage you know the pros and cons of their existing behavior identifying the obstacles and then assessing motivation and supporting that motivation to change enable choice because sometimes there can be very strict thinking around this so you've got to do this or this is the change you've got to make might be too much whereas offering them alternatives, you know, we could do this or we could do this, um, could be more helpful. Remember the ongoing physical health monitoring because I think if you've got somebody who you're worried about and you're worried about their physical health, it's important that we do continue to be aware of that and monitor it. And also we need to monitor and support their comorbid mental health as well. Next slide, please. So I'm going to hand over to Dr Cox now who's a um, psychiatrist in our adult eating disorder service in Hampshire. Thank you.
2: Morning all. Um, first off thank you for inviting me. So often when we're seeing patients um, with eating disorders when we kind of do our referrals meeting it's, it's one of the few places that we can actually really gather the sort of information that we need to help try and stratify does, you know, where someone's going to sit on our waiting list but also looking at you know, do they meet the criteria for an eating disorder or could it be something else? The key things that we need to know really start with, what is their history of their eating difficulties? Is this someone who has developed this relatively recently? And um, with all the changes around lockdown over the last year, we've seen a a real increase in the number of people who've developed problems more acutely um, over the last few months. Also, Alongside it, what is it that they're eating? As mentioned earlier, it's really useful to get quite detailed kind of breakdown of what they eat on a a certain day. And most people are able to give me quite detailed kind of, you know, it's an avocado on toast for breakfast, for example. And then I might have two rice cakes for lunch with a little bit of chicken. Um, It's very helpful um, to give us those sorts of details. Alongside that, what is it that they might do to try and help manage their behaviours? It's always really important to keep pressing on this one. I think sometimes it's, uh, you know, a good example would be probably the lady that I was seeing earlier in the earlier last week, where she would talk to me about the fact that she was going to the gym kind of six times a week, but it wasn't just going six times a week. It was going to the gym six times a week for four hours. Plus, there was runs that would happen in between those times, as well as doing excessive amounts of walking, deliberately taking longer routes to try and get to certain parts of the city as opposed to taking the most direct route. The other thing as well would be making sure that you've got an idea about laxative like, purgatives um, and also about the rate of weight loss. Sometimes this can be something that can be quite frightening um, when you start to document it. I think we had someone who's recently dropped from around um, a weight, of, I think it was 50 kilograms at the start of December to 32 um, as of a couple of weeks ago. And that really rapid precipitate kind of drop in weight is something that we also take it into a quite considerable account when we're looking at where we can safely manage someone's care. One of the other questions as well is really why is it that they're now seeking treatment and sometimes this is quite a complex reason because these these disorders can be quite long-standing. It's not uncommon that we'll see them start in childhood, progress through kind of adolescence and into kind of 20s, 30s and beyond and often people will manage it with a degree and a kind of supportive environment but then there will be changes that will kind of mean that either things are getting worse they're beginning to notice that they're not able to do things they used to do or it might be kind of their close family and friends who will highlight it as well. Previous history and treatments is, is, again, very useful for us to know when we get a referral. Is this someone who has never been known to mental health services in any way, shape or form? Or have they been someone who's kind of come from out of area, but has had significant periods of time under child and adolescent mental health services? They've had inpatient admissions under the Mental Health Act. They've engaged in different types of treatment, whether it's pharmacological um, or whether it's psychological um, as well comorbid disorders as mentioned before this is one of the, the kind of the, the key bits for us to try and help to understand what we can do to, to help someone it's really important that we try and treat these um, alongside someone's uh, eating disorder so whether they've got depression anxiety trying to make sure that the medications and psychological therapies for those have been optimized in the past or even if it's going to be going towards the other extreme we do see a few people who have um, both have got psychotic disorders alongside their eating disorder that that is quite rare the f- results of the physical health examination are really useful for us to include as well. Um, one of the, the issues that we sometimes find is that particularly people in this group don't like um, information being shared widely. So sometimes they have dissented from it being put onto Chai, And again, that just means that when we're trying to make sure that we're able to provide them the best care, actually including the up-to-date results is really helpful. The other one as well is about risk assessment. Now risk assessment is pretty is something obviously that we spend a lot of time trying to understand. It's Something which is completely uh, pointless to try and predict risk but it's really useful to know what people have done before and what that what they do or what is being done by those around to try and help manage the risk often with this group we're looking at evidence of self-harm suicidality but also around what we call vulnerability how is this limiting them to access you know resources in the community is it stopping them gaining employment is it stopping them going to um, go to groups where they would get support because of their low weight what is it that is really impacting on them. Alongside this though, it's also useful to understand the physical health impacts that this is ha- having as, as well. I know that yesterday I was being asked for my thoughts on someone who alongside us having an eating disorder has also got some significant cardiac history and again it's about how we're going to try and manage the two of those together going forward. Next slide please. What we do to treat anorexia nervosa and other eating disorders is normally psychological there are some times that we'll use medications and as mentioned before trying to optimize people's um, comorbid mental health disorders is really key so if people are struggling with depression or anxiety making sure there are appropriate antidepressants is is very helpful there are some times that we will use kind of pharmacological means to try and help treat someone with depression uh, sorry, with an eating disorder and those are those are often only started in secondary care for example, there'd be some people who I'd recommend we might start a low dose of an antipsychotic just because sometimes that helps to unstick some of those really sticky, stuck anorexic cognitions that people may, may have. Obviously, a lot of those medications as well will cause weight gain. So there's often quite a large amount of negotiation that goes on to try and help manage that discussion. With regards to the psychological therapies, now I, I'm not a psychologist, so I'm, I'm not someone who, who delivers these, the, so I have done so. In my in my training in the past but often we'll look at using things such as CBT for eating disorders um, and again that can also we'll use more brief versions of that in the bulimia path, pathway and also binge eating disorders pathway as well and those are really about trying to look at how people's thoughts around eating their emotions their feelings and then their actions all link together trying to understand often what it is that that's underlying it I always remember what I was told by the first consultant i worked with around eating disorders that a lot of eating disorders have absolutely nothing to do with food and an awful lot to do with control and trying to understand that pick it apart and then see if there are new ways to reformulate the problem and move forward are really key there are other things as well that we'll use so daycare at the moment um, this is run out of april house in a more virtual form um, and that's normally where people will dial in remotely that will be they'll have their meals they'll be able to engage in supportive psychotherapy afterwards kind of look and try and help them to manage their feelings of fatness or feelings of not being in control or their ruminations the feelings of guilt etc whilst they have eaten you know if we've been having this conversation maybe a year ago that would be happening physically in April house um other ones as well that we'll look at as well are around DBT. Now, DBT is something that we often use for people with personality disorders, but at the same time has a role in people with binge eating disorder and also alongside kind of treating people, quite often people that we do treat will have comorbid personality disorders. And making sure that they have access to that as well is quite key to ensure that they get their overall kind of care looked after in a more holistic way. Next slide, please. One of the really tricky bits, obviously, is when people become increasingly unwell and how we manage them both in the community and when we have the conversations about going into an acute hospital or even going into an eating disorder's bed. Each person is is different and often there is no simple answers with these, these people and it involves an awful lot about trying to understand the risk and trying to work out what is going to be the most appropriate way to manage it. If you are seeing someone, though, who is presenting with um, disordered eating and they've got a, a significant reduction in their weight and actually you're beginning to get concerns about their own physical health and are suggesting that they may want to engage in treatment therapy whether that's both either for their physical health or their mental health and they're refusing the first thing to do is to always look at their capacity I'm not going to teach you to suck eggs but it's always really important to think about are they really able to weigh up um, what it is that's going on if you think about it that they're maybe quite emotionally dysregulated or there may be these really strong anorexic cognitions that is quite often one of the cruxes about trying to understand what it is that's going on. I can think of someone that I saw quite recently who was unable to really entertain any other way that they could um, engage in care and they were just flatly refusing everything and actually when you started to try and talk to them about the risks about having an NG tube put down them um, so that there could be some kind of immediate weight restoration in the acute trust they just weren't able to have any mental flexibility around it and on kind of discussion between myself on the therapist and the team in gastroenterology we all felt that actually they were lacking capacity because they just were not able to weigh up um weigh up the situation the other one as well really comes down to about whether people are going to need the mental health act now this is not something that um any of us choose to do um if we can avoid it well normally only use this when it is coming to someone needing um, really kind of quite critical life-saving care and they're still refusing or alternatively um, going into an inpatient eating disorders bed. There's no kind of hard and fast level at which point we'll admit someone normally to an eating disorders bed because we'll always try and treat people as close to home with their support networks and in their communities as much as possible but we will really start to have those conversations as a rough ballpark when people's BMIs are in that BMI 14 or 15 type Type area. Often what will happen though for people who we know particularly well, um, what we call our severe and enduring disorders, they may f- function in the community with BMIs as low as 10. There was a lady who unfortunately passed away last year, who I'd known since I was an SHO working in an inpatient eating disorders unit, and she f- she always had a BMI of 10, and that was never a guide to whether she was going to need admission or not. That often came down to her feeling subjectively that she was no longer able to cope and s- manage her own uh, mental health in the community we'll often begin to think about the undertaking mental health assessment either when their rate lock is very low uh, sorry very fast or when their BMI is hitting around the 12 mark at this point there are the added physical complications around refeeding syndrome and actually whether people need to go in first of all to, to have that medical stabilization um, and also about whether they're going to engage in any care one of the really tricky things about eating disorders is that the kind of the the real the way they sneak in and they kind of just say, well, look, I'll, I'll work with you in the community to gain weight, and the amount of weight they gain can be infinitesimally small. But they say, look, I've done this, and they might have gained you know 0.1 of a kilogram, but actually the overall global risk is still quite high, and often there are long discussions between myself and the approved mental health practitioners and the other Section 12 doctors when we undertake these ones about whether it is enough that they have done about engaging in community therapy to really reduce the risk before we go to this point. Um, the other time that we may use the mental health act disorder is using the kind of what we call the principle of the falling shadow. So these are people who are very well known with eating disorders who are starting to have their weight to begin to reduce. There was someone last year who was one of the best examples of this. So while their BMI was still relatively high, it was around thirteen point five at that point. Um, and I appreciate relatively high as a is a very relative term. There, um, they had begun to start to lose weight, and historically they've had multiple admissions. And when they have been admitted, their weight they've they've not been able to do anything in the community to stop that that weight drop. And one of the problems that we were particularly having last year was that what we didn't want is for people who are going to have a very low BMI to be in very busy EDs with immunocompromised due to their low weight and therefore being an increased risk of picking up infections. And as such, on discussion with the AMP service at the time, we agreed that this was someone where we would look at maybe the nature rather than the severity of their mental disorder about what could be used to, to manage them in, the, in, in hospital. It is a very complicated area and I'm quite happy to take questions at the end. Um, next slide, please. So, oh, Hannah's back as well to kind of help me get through this one. So, so some I, of the, I'll let, do you want to? I'll let you hand up.
1: Yeah, so I was going to say, so in summary, um, I think the clear messages are to my fellow GPs do seek a help, help when I'm sure. Um, do speak to the eating disorder service. Um, consider talking to the local CMHT if you're not sure about. The comorbid mental health or you know whether this is EUPD or an eating disorder or yeah you're, you're just not sure which is the best way to go in terms of supporting this person. Um, We need integrated mental and physical health assessments um, in order to understand their risks and their needs. Um, if you've got somebody who you are worried about in terms of their physical health and feel that they Potentially need admission to an acute hospital, do speak to the gastroenterology on call. Or even before that, if you're not sure um, if somebody's heading that way, do speak to them. Um, I spoke to the gastroenterologist about my lady who kept going in with low blood sugars um, and energy feeding, and we ended up with a care plan for her that really helped in terms of my colleagues, if they ended up seeing her on duty, knowing actually what do I need to do? What's the support? What's her plan here? How do we keep her out of hospital when? it's appropriate, when does she need to go into hospital? And that was really, really helpful for everybody at my practice, having that support, the eating disorders and also the gastroenterologists. Um, Just be aware that, yeah, these people are a group with high mortality risks, so share that risk, um, get support. If the referral is declined, do contact them for a rationale um, and also, other useful um, things that can support people if they're not meeting that criteria for the eating disorder service, such as BEAT, which is a fantastic charity and there's some details on that about that on the next slide. Um, and also anticipate and um, possible ambivalence and support the underlying feelings and emotions. And remember that this recovery journey is a marathon, not a sprint. Next slide, please. So here's some resources that um, may be helpful for both yourselves and anybody that you're uh, supporting at the moment. So BEAT has um, a really good array of uh, support options through, and you can have a look at their website there. They're fantastic. Um, For professionals, the uh, Guide to Medical Risk Assessment for Eating Disorders is the one I referenced by um, Professor Janet Treasure. Um, is the one below sorry and then there's the RCGPE learning module on eating disorders is also good Um, and uh, there's a book if anybody wants to really really um, read a lot more about this which has all kinds of um, interesting information and it's it's actually quite an easy read and I really enjoyed reading it Um, and then for the patient um, there's some really good books that Adam and his team have recommended as well to support people. So, thank you very much, and we're really happy to take questions.
0: Adam, Hannah, thank you so much. It's lovely to get the the, the com- combination of you as well, because Hannah with your primary care hat on, and Adam also with secondary care. And Hannah, I um I know you've got your um uh your clinical lead hat on today as well. So we've got some questions. Um, Uh, which I'm going to go through in in order. So if you're listening, this is now your opportunity. Uh, Hannah and Adam were tasked with 40 minutes presentation and 20 of of questions and they've kept the time and I'm a stickler for time. So I'm grateful for that guys. Um, so I'm going to start at the top of the questions. Uh, I can see, Adam, thank you, you've answered one um, uh, live. But this is, this is probably to you, Hannah, to start with. Um, it's come from Fliss. Can you talk to us about monitoring and how that fits in with GMS services? Now, I know this is a tricky area um, and obviously you can only sp- speak for one part of, of Wessex. But um, I know you're aware of these questions. And Fliss has written, we were asked to monitor somebody every two weeks with weighing blood tests bp monitoring this is really hard to accommodate and huge pressure on us and and the patient as well um which obviously we've got a kind of COVID hat to this as well and trying to as you say adam these are vulnerable patients who are at risk of infection Um, so hannah can you comment on that and try and help us understand a bit
1: yes absolutely so um i think the thing is that the way we have things set up at the moment in Hampshire, is that we have an eating disorder service that doesn't have, uh, hasn't had up until now, the medical input to do the physical health monitoring. Um, and I think when this was initially commissioned some time ago, I think there was an assumption potentially that this work um, would be done in primary care. And I think there's been a massive underestimation of volume and the risk, um, and essentially, Some of these people, I think if they are low or moderate risk, I think with support and education and, um, you know, we can monitor these people, but we know that some of these people can be high or very high risk and that's not appropriate for primary care clinicians to be doing in isolation. And uh, it's not for the GMS contract. So part of the work that um, I've been doing alongside Adam um, and part of the reason why we have some of that information I shared with you about our Southampton data is we've been um, uh, developing a model which um, is currently being presented at all the different CCGs across the Hampshire patch um, in order to get primary care feedback. Um, and uh, it already has been discussed with the Eating Disorder Service and Commissioners um, to develop a hub and spoke model for physical health monitoring. Um, And so that will be then taken for funding and approval um, through the Hampshire and Isle of Wight. Well, it depends, because obviously in a month's time we're going to be in Hampshire and Isle of Wight CCG, so one CCG. So there's complexity all over the place. But essentially, the situation as it stands cannot continue. Um, We know that in Cambridge and Peterborough, we've had deaths of five young people. and in that, there was uh, the NHS Ombudsman did um, a report called um, uh, Raising the Alarms, and that identified a lack of communication between primary care and secondary care services around eating disorders and a lack of monitoring and a lack of understanding. So absolutely, it can't continue. And we are nearly there with the solution to supporting these this vulnerable group for being monitored properly. And we ask that you bear with us as much as possible We are nearly there.
0: Thank you, Hannah. I think it's a very tricky situation because the patient needs to be at the heart of it and then there, there are obviously complexities. Thank you. Um and I have something quite physical now. <laughs> when when one of the things you mentioned in one of your slides is oh one of the things you can do to see it, what their physical health is like is the squat test. And has said, Can you I think she means can you demonstrate the squat test or, or talk talk us through it?
1: <laughs> so I'm not going to demonstrate it because then I'll have to move the camera and you have to see me trying to climb off the floor and my puppy might. Might come in at any moment and attack me whilst doing it. However, um, I can send you, um, along with this presentation, I can send you a link to the YouTube channel, uh, a YouTube channel video showing you how to do it because I had to look up how to do it when I first saw this as part of monitoring. But essentially it's about squatting and sitting up and it's about how, how much they need to use their arms to kind of help push themselves up and whether they can do it independently. But I will send you a link to the YouTube video that demonstrates it perfectly.
0: Thank you, that's really helpful. Um, and and Phyllis has got a couple of questions, I think probably best placed towards Adam. Uh, um, I'll give you both of them. One is, I think your numbers underestimate the present levels of eating disorder, particularly in our younger, um, um, under 25s. Is that your impression? So I'll ask you that question. Um, but then also, I think there's also a, a, a good question. Do you ever include the eating behaviours of the severely obese who may not binge use, but use comfort eating? So it's all, almost like an overeating uh, eating disorder. Um, and to address their feelings and undertake repeated intermittent dieting. Adam, I don't know if you could take both those questions.
2: No, sure. So I think people under the age of 25, you know, there there is definitely an increase. And that's been in a lot of the news, particularly around children, about increased levels of eating disorders. And whilst we don't um, do the CAM service for Hampshire, um, obviously, I, I do link in with them about people, particularly in that transition. One of the things that we are looking at locally is something called called FREED, which is about that kind of early intervention in people with eating disorders when they first um, start to develop them at quite a young age. And it, you know, there is good evidence that if you can intervene early, you can hopefully improve their care and reduce the duration of the time and ultimately the disability in the longer term. But yeah, we, we are really, I, I feel very subjectively over the last um, few months since I've been working with April House, that the number of people that we've seen both who have been at a very severe and very low BMIs, and also the age um, of which people are developing it, is, is occurring at a, a more increased rate. And Alison, actually, yeah. on
0: that point, Alison asks, is there any value in trying to nip it in the bud? Um, start with teens, and, and and do you have any um, advice for helping young people and parents who might be facing mm. this?
2: And, uh, as I said, yes, there is absolutely trying to intervene early is really important. Unfortunately, CAM services, um, and I, I, I can't claim to be a great expert on the CAM services locally, by and large, they they are very stretched. I know in Hampshire that that they they really have quite a long waiting list at the moment to try and get appropriate care and support um and that previously people might go to somewhere like the house if they needed inpatient work but even there the number of beds has been cut because of the the ability to to really give the appropriate care so i think it is time to always have that that really that have that suspicion in your head is this someone who is beginning to develop one even at quite a young age and making sure that you do contact the cams team for advice quite early on because it you know it really is a case of being able to to treat it earlier, is going to mean that there is, is is less disability further on. So, yes, absolutely agree with that.
1: I I think I'd just like to add actually in terms of the question about um prevalence in the under-25s, I think um, you know, somewhere somewhere like Southampton where I'm from, where it's a university city, we've got a lot of university students, and I think we are potentially under-recognising um the level of eating disorders, and I think that was where. I was sort of saying about the fact that sometimes there is um potentially ambivalence and and um from the person themselves about actually acknowledging the eating problems that they have and they may be presenting with symptoms of anxiety or depression and we didn't mean between us we may not be highlighting the fact that there isn't a developing eating disorder here so that's where I think asking some of those screening questions early can be really helpful in identifying it earlier.
0: Thank you Hannah and Adam can I come back to you about the question about um, overeating and obesity as an eating
2: disorder? So overeating you know definitely binge eating disorder as we mentioned is is part of it but when it comes to people who are really obese and they're overeating often it's trying to understand what is the mechanism for that is that you know is, is there a different underlying pathology and I think this comes back to kind of one of the, the key issues around eating disorders and what are called disordered eating. I, I, I work in my other job as a the psychiatrist at Southampton in General. So I spend a lot of time trying to differentiate between the two, because trying to fit the treatment for, you know, anorexia or bulimia on someone whose underlying pathology as to why they're overeating—maybe depression or anxiety—often means that they don't get better, and um, they feel frustrated and failures, and that that leads to all kinds of negative cognitive cycles. So if you've got someone who is obese and they are overeating, is it something like binge eating disorder, and trying to understand that, or is it actually that? very depressed at the same time and this is a coping mechanism at which point it's well let's try and treat the depression first of all so that that would kind of be my my thoughts on it but it it's often really tricky and this group you know i i spend a lot of time um trying to differentiate between someone who might have anorexia particularly if i had a childhood diagnosis and a personality disorder where they're almost using that food restriction as a form of Mm self-harm so it's it's really tough trying to sometimes work out what's going on
0: yeah, and I think that's in primary care. That's where actually we've got the beauty of a bit of time because we can build a relationship with a patient over time and understand is it a depression or is it a personality disorder. Um, but it's great to hear from both of you that one of the one of the things that he's coming across is seek help talk to us like ask us for help which is really reassuring because it can be feel quite frightening uh, by yourself in your consulting room and the questions are coming in these are great please keep them coming because this is a really good opportunity um a quick one for you adam fliss has asked um quick explanation over cbt and versus dbt now i know you're not a psychologist but have you got have you got some pearls of wisdom for that
2: so yeah i mean so cognitive behavioral therapy and dialectical behavioral therapy that's what they, they stand for first of all cbt is i'll be honest it's very it can be very manualized you can do it online it's all about looking at thoughts feelings emotions and actions and how they play together you know those feelings of shame that mean that then you uh, don't eat and because of that then you feel that f- feeling of you know success that you've managed to control things and how that all loops together dbt is about learning to manage and understand emotions if you if you think of the the people i'm certain you will see who've got emotionally unstable personality sort of traits of that um, it's about trying to learn to live with those kind of really fluctuating emotions to try and hold two concepts that things can both be good and bad at the same time Um, they're very different i could could go on at at quite length but dbt often has quite a long waiting list and takes quite a long time whereas cbt 10 12 sessions you can hopefully see a difference
0: yeah, and I think this is where Alison makes the point. It's really daunting to hear about the long recovery for patients. Um, and Alison, we're going to speak to Charlie uh, in our next session, who, who has an eating disorder as a doctor, who's going to talk to us about that. So maybe we can, can hear a little bit. Hearing the patient insight will be really useful for that. Um, so Mark's made a, a good question. Is a is referral to eating disorder specialist appropriate for a patient who has functional globus? and therefore refusing to eat solid food and losing significant amounts of weight, but has zero insight into an eating disorder that's fixated on the ENT pathology, the Globus, and um, also refusing investigations. Mark, this sounds like a tricky patient um, with the ENT, because over-fixated, um, overly fixated on the investigations with working with Globus. Have you got any experience, Hannah or, or Adam, of this kind of patient? I've, I, I have had one
1: with very severe globus, yes. And actually, we were supported by the CMHT for this lady because uh, for her, the underlying pathology was extreme anxiety. Um, but she'd never had any kind of choking episodes. And I think that's the interesting thing because um, when you think about things like ARFID, you can get people who have the um, sort of sensory restrictions, but then it can also be somebody who's had a traumatic event with food, potentially. I'm not sure if this person has had a traumatic event, but I'll let Adam answer his
2: bit next no i i I would probably say to go to the cmht first to try and really unpick what is going on because i I think it's you know definitely i've I've worked with people where there are two kinds of diagnoses going on people are fixated on something else and often the other way as well where people are fixated on the eating disorder as a diagnosis and not considering another mental health disorder I think it's probably worth going to CMHT first because these sorts of complicated ones, eating disorder services, by and large, they're very good at dealing with what they deal with. But when it starts to get beyond that, um, often because, you know, they are complicated and it's beyond their kind of scope of working, the more generic CMHTs are a better place to go first and then pulling in the eating disorder support as is needed afterwards.
0: Yeah, that makes sense, thank you. Um, um, Mark says thanks for that. Um, um, and just now an going back to referrals, Adam, um, Carmen has asked um, rather than rejecting referral, can we have a conversation back and forth? I think it's really useful uh, with the slide where you said what we can put on our referrals to help you, because obviously your services is, is going to be inundated and needs to triage how severe your patients are. Um, it, but an ask there perhaps from from us, that can we have a bit of a two way conversation if a referral is um, uh, declined? Is it possible to have an information why it's been rejected so we don't go back into this this sort of volley of tennis match backwards and forwards um is that is that helpful
2: uh, do you know I'm, I'm more than happy that I'll, I'll forward that onto the team at april house you know I'm, I'm a big believer in let's have the conversation so that you can understand why we might be saying no and also you know when to re-refer when are things changing Absolutely. If if you want to know, if you want to know, I will feed that back in the referrals meeting later this week and say, you know, can we start to put a bit more rationale down?
0: This is something we want from these meetings is to to open that two-way dialogue and help both sides that we're all working as one for our patients. And um, we've got a lovely comment here from Tracy. We had a very sick anorexic recently who needed admission to hospital for 48 hours for refeeding prior to inpatient assessment to Marshwood. And Dr Cox, you may well know this patient. Thank you very much, Dr Cox, for your help and guidance with our patients. Patient. the patient was admitted via medics but ended under the care of Dr Akbar at Basingstoke who was excellent he's a nutritional gastroenterologist and had experience in dealing with anorexia and uh, was able to coordinate with you and the eating disorders team so obviously a, a personal reflection a, a, and thanks to you as well so it's nice for the rest of us to hear these positive stories as well I,
2: I'm, I'm really positive to hear that in my appraisals this afternoon so I'm going to screenshot that for that later <laughs>
0: that good we, this you. is this is working as a team it's lovely it's lovely to hear both sides um so Helen's asked a question what would you advise we do with a patient who despite um a BMI of around 14 they're refusing to engage with eating disorder service? and I, I think this is something a lot of us will have mm. experienced we have been asked to continually monitor which we can do to the best of our ability but unclear when we should do weight um what sorry what we should do when weight continues to decline How would we get a capacity assessment or mental health assessment if patients continue to decline? And what is the best way of reaching Dr Cox for advice?
2: (laughs) So, oh, so so this is, I mean, this is the the million dollar question a lot of the time. Sometimes uh, for patients like this, you know, I I, I really appreciate that kind of request. Just please keep monitoring and if they decline. But what is the decline, particularly if things are stable? You know, and it's it's really difficult capacity you know understanding why they're not seeking help capacity i'm always happy if you if you do a capacity assessment on some and then you want to talk it through afterwards please do give me a call um i'll stick you know i i have the the really easy um nhs.net email address just adamcox nhs.net and often i'll do this with the gastroenterologists because we'll see the same people we'll see in liaison they'll come onto the gastroenterology wards they will have very low bmis they've you know the gps try to refer them to the e sort of team they've refused they don't want help um they're not yet at that point where they're kind of that they've kind of hit crisis really sadly at which point they will seek help um and we'll kind of go through the capacity assessments and we'll try and weigh it up and often they'll be going that, that they might have capacity we go well do you know what you've got capacity and that's that's fine we're giving you the best advice but you are an adult and you're making some unwise choices other times we go actually the anorexic cognitions are so strong that we think maybe you do that capacity and we'll try and at least get them to agree to an assessment the mental health act is a lot harder particularly if someone is quite stable um, at a low bmi because they're functioning and it's it's not great and there are risks but they're not yet tipping over into that point where they're they're really unwell i think sometimes it's worth having the conversation um, with the approved mental health practitioners go that we've got someone where there are increasing risks because their weight is dropping they are Either refusing community treatment or they're not engaging in physical health monitoring, and therefore there is a risk, and we just don't know what's going on. Sometimes these people then need to be detained to the acute trusts first for that to really get a good understanding. There was someone that I was dealing with um, last year who the gp were doing a fantastic job with a mental health nurse embedded in the practice to try and maintain this person in the community but they were refusing referrals to cmht they're refusing referrals to eating disorders they were having multiple episodes where they were blackout and going into hospital and it was only once i was able to start seeing them and kind of really go well actually we've got someone who is kind of refusing to eat and it became more of a personality disorder issue that we actually went you know what we're going to detain to do an assessment on an inpatient unit which is quite an extreme one and i'm not a big fan of doing but it meant that then we got a really good understanding of them and actually i think once they they felt that bit of contained and cared for they've actually started to engage a bit more appropriately since then um but do you know if you do have issues around capacity and eating of do do contact us but it, it's often a really difficult place to be because you're you're almost waiting for them to deteriorate further um so that you can do something and i i appreciate how tough it is and that's really not fun
0: Thank you. I, I'm aware of time, so I, I'm going to pull things together. The la- we've got a couple of other comments and I'm sorry I haven't got to everyone. Elizabeth's just saying, as a welfare officer in my daughter's athletics club, I've come to realise that a lot of adult women run distance, um, sorry, uh, women long distance runners are functioning anorexics. Uh, and, and uh, oh, Hannah, sorry, you want to comment? I'll give you a quick, quick moment. No, I was just going to say that yes, um,
1: being sort of involved in more higher level of athletic sports and things like that is 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 often seen. Um, it's a risk factor. So gymnasts, uh, ballet dancers, um, things like that. So yeah, absolutely. I think there are this 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 can be hidden for quite some time with people functioning well.
0: Yeah. Um, and I, I think um and fiona's asked about um uh, perhaps adam you can look at the last q a and answer that uh, in typing in a minute because it's important that we keep moving because we've got so much i mean we could talk all day about eating disorders um but i just want to really thank both of you for your time this morning and for that idea that we can really integrate primary and secondary care for the best um, for the best experience for our patients and their families and also to help us as professionals sat by ourselves there. Um, Hannah, it's great to hear that you're working with commissioners to try and fill in some of the gaps that have been identified through the significant serious um, untoward events that have been seen in other parts of the country. Adam, I want to thank you for your accessibility uh, and Adam Cox at NHS.net sounds like a very easy address to remember. Um, so I hope you're uh, you're happy to engage with us all.